0: And I'm Brian Brown, co-authors of Move, the four-question go-to-market framework.
1: Helping you confidently take your organization's next move. When I first met
0: Scott Voigt, I think that that lunch was at a, uh, it was like Clucker's Chicken or something <laughs> like that. May not have been the name of it. I remember I was trying to recruit you. I yeah. don't remember what dumb things I said. I did not I get another
1: call from you. so I Well, I, didn't do I well. think you made it
0: pretty clear you were happy where you were and you thought I was an idiot or something <laughs> like
1: that. I don't know. Maybe not that time, but early on when Scott and I met, he was leading the marketing organization at a company you and me have heard about this called Silverpop, which later was acquired by IBM. We would meet up and get lunch every once in a while and talk about marketing. Then as we both continued in our own areas, in our own careers, I saw Scott actually started a company called Full Story from the very early days and now to its early success. And a huge part of his company's success was because, ding, 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 go-to-market strategy. And as we continue to learn more about the move framework and exactly how to identify where your company is in the go-to-market maturity curve, we want to highlight some different success stories from founders who have built their companies using different strategies at different stages. In this episode, we are talking all about product-led growth. And I knew that Scott would be the perfect person to bring in to share his story because... Well, let's actually pick up where we left off in that restaurant all those years ago. I remember this very clearly. You're almost frustrated with the whole obsession of companies raising money and talking about that as like the best thing in the world. And versus like, why are people not creating product-led growth? And that's what your passion was. Well, a few caveats there.
0: One, I'm so thankful for the phrase product-led growth now, because prior to that phrase being coined, I used to draw a chart for everybody in the world, and I was like, no, no, we have lots of customers, then we're gonna go to the enterprise. And a lot of investors, by the way, thought that that was crazy talk. It's like, you just go enterprise, that good. But at the time, there was so much money being raised, still true, by the way, I'm guilty now in our current (laughs) days and phrase of raising lots of money. The thing we say at Full Story is nobody gives you a high five when you refinance your house. You know, it's like, that's a financing event. Congratulations, you still have a house. And so I think we try to say the same thing about funding events for the company. It's like, get excited when we close a huge customer. Get excited when we launch a new marketing campaign or we hire somebody that's great or somebody gets toasted internally for doing something great within the company. Don't get excited because you did a financing event for the company. That will happen if it needs to happen. Right. Is that not, the ramp? That I, probably, I, I, I've I ramped remember, at that a long time. I think
1: that was like, you know, almost pre you raising any fun. And I remember that walking out really, um, quite frankly impressed with the fact that that didn't impress you that like people raising or even the conversation around like, oh, how much you have raised that you're like, let's talk about how many customers you have. For sure. Let's talk about, you know, all those things. So where did that come from? How did the product led obsession for you? Where did that start? It is a great
0: question. You know, honestly, my co-founders at Full Story, Bruce and Joel, were and are brilliant computer scientists. And they always believed the best products will win. And if you just build it good enough, and it is so self-evident that anybody can come into this product and it will shower obvious value to them, that is the formula for success. And if you put your product first, it forces your, really your company to think about how do we design for the user? How do we make sure we're delivering value? And how do we not just throw people at problems? Because people are wonderful, but they're also very expensive. And in the earliest days of a company, when you don't have a lot of money, you're just trying to get that strongest signal that the product you've put into the world is one that people wanna work with. And if they're sending you that signal, then you can layer on marketing and then you can layer on salespeople where needed. I don't know, it just feels like the right thing to do. Like, let's flip it around and look the other way. If you're a company that, by the way, there's nuance to everything I'm saying here, but if you're a company that serves the enterprise and the first customer you close is a $10 million a year customer. You're building to serve that one customer. You're building to serve that one customer. Like every feature is gonna be guided by that one customer. And it may or may not translate to the second customer that you want. It's also true that you can throw a lot of people at the problem pretty early on. If you've got $10 million of revenue coming through the door, you can configure this and you can wire that and you can service over with professional services and you start to lose the essence of what the product is perhaps. And then so as you try to scale the business out to additional customers, You have to recreate all those things. Oh, the services team has got to come in. And oh, we've got to have Bob wire this computer to that computer and write the interface to make it work. The product-led
1: approach just gives you so much scale, maybe not out of the gate, but over time. Take me back to the time where full story idea came about, you met your co-founder, you go go back to that time and then also walk through the timeline up to how many, because you also tried to get salespeople in and, and tried to work that model up and, and you went back yeah, into yeah. it and said, well, you know what? No, 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 we need to go product product led first. Walk through that tug of war that I'm pretty sure you felt, and also the pressure being in the tech village and all the areas where everybody's raising fun and you're like, you have to hunker down on like, no, this is the way to go. Right. What kept you going and what was that beginning journey look like?
0: Yeah, well, I don't know that we're gonna have enough time to get in there. <laughs> can, we, can we go long <laughs> okay. in this? Hopefully we can. I talk about the founding story of Full Story actually goes way back to 2004, 2005, where Bruce and Joel and I met each other. And very long story short, we were working together when the company that Bruce and Joel had founded hit Google's radar and they came in and acquired that little three-person entity. And you know, the way I tell the story is, I did not ever work a day for Google. I went over and worked with Bill Nussie and fought in the email wars. Bruce and Joel built out that office. But there was such good chemistry amongst the three of us that we would get together and kind of say, well, do we want to do this again? And we, we'd have those conversations once a month, once a quarter for years. And so it was seven years later when we all kind of worked up the courage to quit our day jobs yeah. and start what would eventually become Full Story. Mm-hmm. So the reality is we had no idea what we were doing. We just um, wanted
1: to work together. You
0: we know, wanted something. to work together. Yeah. I had some early ideas based on some problems, some pain I had felt at Silverpop running a marketing organization that there may be a hole for a product shaped to do this thing. So we started building this first product. It was called Homebase. It had nothing to do with Full Story. We launched it into the world and we were getting we were getting customers. We weren't getting clear signals on what the customers were doing in the product. We repurposed some marketing technology, Google Analytics. We tried to shove that into the product to give us insight into what our customers were doing. And we didn't really like that tool. So that was something that started the gears spinning about, well, we're having a problem as it pertains to being a product team trying to understand product interaction. So there was that. Here's the important break in the action. That product had not really fit into the market yet. Like we were building something based on something Scott Thought might be a good idea. Founder-led. Seemed like a good idea at the time. We went to try to raise money. So maybe when I was sitting having coffee with you saying, (laughs) raising money is overrated. It's because we were not successful at raising money. (laughs) we were pissed off. Oh, my gosh. You know, it just dejected is probably a better phrase. So we kept meeting with these investors. And they would, in essence, say look, there's a hole in the market here, yes, but the way you're going about it may or may not be the right way. And we were suffering from founder happy ears. We were kind of like, they don't get it. They don't understand. Like we've got a vision for this thing. Meanwhile, we all were awake in the middle of the night, (laughs) staring at the (laughs) ceiling, thinking about, what can we build into the product to make it something that people really do? So product's not doing great in the market, venture funding not coming, not finding us the way that we thought it would. And then we had this pain of what are people doing in our product? How do we make it better? And so there would, you know, if you remade the movie of full story, there's not that scene in the kitchen where all of somebody's like, aha, that's it, that's the full story idea. Never happened. It was just this kind of iteration. What if we captured data? in a different way than what all these other people would do. Ugh, that'd be really hard to capture data yeah. by default, everything and index it. Joel is yeah. brilliant. He was like, all right. And so he kind of snuck off for a couple of days and came back and it's like, what if we did it this way? Yeah. Well, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if we could hit play and actually see what the users were doing? And he's like, hmm, boy, that'd be really hard. Yeah. You almost want to hear those, that would be really hard, Because that's where you get the invention aspect of it. That's where you start to be able to build some technical moat around what you're trying to do out there. And so over the course of many weeks, we built a very basic broken version of what would eventually be full story. But we had learned a lesson this time. Rather than call pivot and run into the market with this new thing, we showed it to some people. And so I came down to Atlanta Tech Village and I showed it to Kyle Porter who had a worse office situation than we did at the time. (laughs) He was in a closet before ATV had been rebuilt. Um, We showed it to the guys at CallRail who were customers of the first product. And we were worried about saying, hey, that first product you're kind of using, what about this second product? And anyway, we showed it to five or 10 people and every one of them said, that's cool. But we didn't stop there, we were like, it's not just cool, will you pay for it? Mm. Because we're about to ship it. We weren't quite around to ship it. Will you pay for it? Mm. And with each meeting they would say, yeah, we'll pay for it. Great, would you pay $100 a month for it? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, pay $100 a month. And then the next meetings would be like, would you pay $200 a month for it? And, and it was that commitment of price with this problem set and a little bit of invention that led us down the path to to full story.
1: So many themes here that I I wanted to kind of bring, I want to figure out and bring some of them. One, you talked about invention. Yes. And it's almost this idea when we think about in the research of the whole book and as we walk through that, is that you almost have to reimagine, and almost reinvent, not pivot, reinvent yourself as you go from problem to product to platform. Yeah. And as you talked about invention in the very early days, what is invention if it is, as you're moving now up in the marketplace where you're actually bringing a go-to-market team to actually distribute it, what's going on? Is it internal invention? Is it external? Is it product? Like, What type of invention are you seeing?
0: So partner Bruce used to talk about in the early days, spark, flame, fireball, which I think mirrors what you guys are saying in the book in in many ways, spark, flame, fireball. All right. So those first invention discussions were, I'm gonna torture this metaphor in real time. So let's see if this hangs together. It's sort of like, is there a little bit of fuel there? That fuel might be the problem, Mm -hmm. right? Can you kind of take a rock and strike it just to get a little bit of a spark into the fuel. That spark might be a little bit of technology or a little bit of go to market to just get enough to get that flame in place. And you know, that flame stage came, so go back to the first company when we had home base, we never ever had any flame. We'd yeah. bring customers in and they would kind of bleed back out and we'd bring some more in and they'd bleed back out. When we found full story, even with the basic broken version that we launched out there, as soon as we struck the rock to the fuel, it was like yeah. that customer came and they stayed. And then they logged in and they used it. And then they logged in and used it. And then they told their friend. Yeah. And it was like, okay, we're on to something. And as soon as that happened, we moved from Spark to Flame pretty quickly. But the Flame stage, that's a long stage for us. That's that product market fit stage where you're trying to say, well, what segment of the market are we gonna serve? And there's all sorts of, I mean, your book covers this, but there's all sorts of pieces of what does market mean? What segment of the market? We wanted, and in the earliest days, you kind of touched on this earlier, we knew or my experience was you go build a sales team if you have software and you go sell it to the market. And we had just found a little bit of flame we hired a wonderful sales leader that I'd been recruiting for years and we got him to come in and we had flame, but there was some dissonance internally about, did we want to be a, now the phrase is, product-led growth company. We wanted to have something that people could try and buy online without ever talking to a person to really kind of validate that flame and try to get a high in count of customers. And when you have a sales leader, in early, that sales leader saying, don't do that, don't yeah. do that, we wanna charge 12, 20, 50K, and if it's on the site for $199 a month, that's hurting my ability to do yeah. that. Right. And he was right, and we were right. And so we hadn't picked what segment of the market we wanted to serve. We also, when we had just found that flame stage of things, we didn't know who within an organization to go and serve. So the first use case that came to mind with session replay, we were a SaaS company. We were running it still on that first product we launched is we married it into our Zendesk account. So if somebody wrote in and said, hey, I think you got a bug. The first thing we would do is open the Zendesk ticket, click a link in the Zendesk ticket, see what the user was doing and say, oh yeah, we really do I have a it. How do you recreate that bug? So we thought, oh man, we've got, Flame plenty. let's go sell to every VP of support in the world. And so we started talking to VPs of support and they're like, this is really cool, we love it. Let me go talk to my uh, VP of product because he's gonna have to install it. Yeah. You know, Let me talk to my VP of engineering, she's gonna need to configure it. And then we had to go run a sales cycle with those two people as yeah. well when we were doing kind of that exploratory phase of things. And so we quickly found the product people saying, this is our tool. We're building features. We don't know how people are engaging with it. And so we kind of stopped selling or targeting or marketing to mm-hmm. those support people and honed in on the product, product organization. organization. So that first product market fit phase of things, you're tuning the product into what segment of the market is important and how you want to go to market with
1: it. And I think there's so many parallels to this i think when people are listening to this i hope people are recognizing that one when you sell something and you when you have the early idea it's not like you don't have a product market fit necessarily immediately yep. you, you you actually go through the process yes and I remember a similar conversation when you talked about like, would you pay for hundred bucks? I remember when we started Terminus, we had the agency model for a little bit and then we had the product. Right. And I remember me and Eric Vass, my co-founder, yeah. and yeah. Amanda, who was the intern at our place, we hopped on a call, we did a whole pitch around what our product is. And the other person on the, on the side, she said, oh, that's great, send me the order form and uh, how much is it for? And we were like, oh, this is awesome. Well what how much is it for? Yeah, like you know, and so Bass is searching how to get an order form like printed because we didn't know what order form meant. And then I'm like, hold on, put her on mute and ask, how much do you want to sell it for? He's like, dude, you're the marketer, figure it out. And I'm like, two fifty bucks? Yeah, that sounds great. Unmute and I said, two fifty bucks a month. She's like, Yeah, yeah, just send it over, no problem. And that moment was such a big moment. And it went from like 9 a.m. at noon, it was like 500 bucks. And, you know, you you kind of start getting that idea. But herein, walk me through the idea where what happens to your go to market? What does your go to market look like today? If you were to say, this is my go to market strategy that was before. Now, what's your go to market strategy? And then I want to dive into like who owns it? What is our go to
0: market strategy today? If I were to sum it up in I'm gonna sum it up in two words, right? And everybody you could almost pull, I hope this is true, anyone in full story and ask them, what are the two words? They would say these two words, category and flywheel. And so I'm gonna spend more time on flywheel we come back to category. Flywheel was a phrase that we used since the dawn of time at Full Story. And it really does represent the concept of product-led growth with sort of a little bit of a twist on it. And you know, if you were seeing the word flywheel written within Full Story headquarters, you would see the second E has an underscore to it because it represents make sure that you're going to the enterprise over time. Mm-hmm. So phase one, we found a little flame early days, product market fit. Acquire as many customers as we can at a reasonable price point to make sure that we have product market fit and that we are going to be an efficient company in our go-to-market strategy. Meaning, like, we're not gonna negotiate a contract with you. We're not gonna let you talk to a salesperson. We're gonna have a great user experience in the product so we don't have to have a lot of support people. Manning things. we're gonna write great help. All of those things in the earliest phase were really important. And then you start to, if you get that right, have your customers change jobs and bring you into a little bit bigger of an opportunity. Or you start to market to a little bit bigger of a customer, all the while you're sort of Bolstering your product to handle higher scale and some of those configurable things that the bigger type customers want. You know, I think we're probably two or three years into our journey when we had our second round of sales. So yeah. that first time we talked about, yeah, didn't work didn't out. Work well. and, and we we just kind of said, we're gonna be that credit card swipe company and that's gonna be it. And and then we really started to kind of feel that when you got into that mid-market type customer, they wanted to talk to someone. Yeah, They needed to review your contract and wrap wasn't gonna be good enough. So we had sort of a second experiment with sales in that era. And this was true for us. I don't know how many other companies it's true for. You find that you have to test your dogma over and over again. And our dogma was at the time, I think you can Google it and find a blog post that we wrote saying the best products will win, which I do very much want to be true, yeah. but it's not true. Let's be honest. There are companies in the world with okay products and really good sales well. organizations, yeah. and they are just killing it. Yeah. And So you don't wanna be the Betamax that lost to VHS, yeah. right? Betamax is better. Yeah. You wanna be the company that is also best of breed sales, best of breed customer success. Yeah. You know, you do that in your own way, in your own flavor, but for a while we had to test our dogmas like, ugh, Because if we change the credit card swipe nature of things, and we let people try online and buy online and pay monthly, is that going to bring back some of that tension that we experienced during the early days? The answer, by the way, is yes, yes, it's going to. But we set out to create a category. And we can talk more about categories, but I've been fortunate in my experience to see and work at three companies, two companies in three categories. Like my first job out of school back in 1997 <laughs> was working for one of the first internet banking systems
1: ever. That's pretty far out. Oh, it was. Let Grandpa tell you a story, <laughs> Singer.
0: It, like in back in the day if you were a community bank, the only way that you talked to your customers was when they came into the branch. Right. You know, ATMs were like revolutionary yeah. for them. And then you've got some, I don't know how old I was, 22 year old kid wander into your bank and explain, this is the internet, <laughs> this is a virtual branch.
1: Yeah. And one day,
0: People are gonna to go to this thing, the internet, and they're gonna interact with yeah. you. Anyway, that category just took off. Yeah. And there were companies that targeted the enterprise, the Bank of America's, I don't think it was called Bank of America then, you know, yeah. they targeted the huge banks. We had that sort of, there wasn't product led growth in, but we had that mid market. And you saw how that category emerged. Yeah. And there was a new competitor every week. And how do you counter that? And what about their technology versus ours? So anyway, I loved that phase of things. And then when I went to Silverpop and fought in the email wars, we learned the same sort of lessons. Like at Silverpop, we used to talk about where we sat versus the capital E enterprise. You know, There was a company called Responsus mm-hmm. who got acquired by Oracle. The big companies always get acquired by Oracle yeah. for some reason, like Responsus and Eloqua. Yep. Marketing automation, by the way, was the, I fought in that battle with my good friend Brian Brown yeah. to watch that category emerge as well. And there are, I think in SaaS, some very similar patterns that you start to see over time. And I want this to be true I think it is true. Of course, everything is nuanced. But product-led companies, if they get it right and they get that groundswell of customers and they're relentless towards getting to the capital E enterprise and doing what you have to, services, configuration, negotiate contracts, just all the things that a lot of times that product-led idealistic approach doesn't really want to do because it's kind of icky, if you'll do that, you'll dominate the category. when it it emerges. You look at a company like Datadog Mm. right now that is just doing so well in the APM space. You look at Qualtrics, their market cap is probably four or five five X, their next competitor. And their next competitor is usually that company that started in the enterprise.
1: I mean, I love the examples. Who owns go-to-market?
0: Who do most people think owns go-to-market strategy? I think the easy answer is people think the CEO runs go-to-market strategy because CEO and whatever. That's, That's wrong. It takes a village. I'd say the second answer that people likely say is sales. Whether that's right or wrong, they say it because sales, we talk about empathy a lot within Full Story, empathy for our customers. We have a lot of empathy for our sales teams. These are people who feast or famine, on how good the product is supporting them and the the success and services teams are supporting them. Starts marketing every
1: single month for them. It's tough,
0: it's tough. I started my career as a salesperson. So I do think that sales often has the loudest voice at the table when it comes to -to go-to-market strategy. I also would say, again, bringing nuance into the discussion, depends on the phase of the company. Right. If you're in the teeny tiniest early stage phase of the company, that go-to-market strategy likely is the CEO and the product person that are wet at the hip trying to get those first things further and further out. We're not at this phase of thing, but here come the McKinsey people. They're gonna <laughs> they're gonna parachute in and they're gonna tell you what your uh, go-to-market strategy. Is.